Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I want to bring in Mutaba Rahman, the practice head of Europe for the Eurasia Group based in London, to give us some details about the G20 summit meeting taking place in Hamburg. Uh, President Donald Trump meeting today with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Mutaba, thank you for being with us. Can you tell us, is there a specific agenda that these meetings follow? I mean, what actually goes on when uh, the heads of state meet along with their uh, foreign policy experts? What goes on in the room? It would be a, it would be fantastic to be a, a fly on the wall, wouldn't it? I mean, Sherpas have been working up the agenda in the preceding weeks for leaders uh, to discuss when they get in the room: trade, climate change, um, navigating some of the, the world's hotspots, Syria. I think for this meeting, what's interesting is it's going to be the first opportunity for the rest of the global community's leadership to meet with Donald Trump. And that's really what I think this meeting is, is going to be about. And when Donald Trump is not in the room, that's certainly what I think other leaders are going to be talking about. There's a, there's a real focus, I think, on um, the U.S. and the U.S.'s commitment to the multilateral system. And that has really ruffled feathers, let's say, in the, in the G20. And that's really what I think this meeting will be about, how do, how do leaders perceive Trump and What's their expectation of the direction in which he's going to take U.S. policy over the medium term? Is there any uh, difference in terms of uh, sort of assessing uh, the president because he is not a, a veteran political figure like many of the other heads of state? I mean, it certainly becomes more difficult if Trump has proven to be one thing that is unpredictable. So not even clear whether the policy position staked out by his aides will be consistent with the line he takes when he's in the room. And I think you clearly see concern. Certainly, you know, for me covering Europe from the German perspective, a tremendous amount of concern about what Trump is doing over trade, over what he's doing regarding climate change. And in some ways, Angela Merkel has set herself up in opposition to Donald Trump and some of the positions that are being taken by this administration. And that, I think, is going to be one subtext of the G20 in Hamburg over the next few days. Indeed, the bilateral between Trump, Putin, that will be another. I think also uh, the Chinese leadership and their interaction with the U.S. These are all, I think, subplots in the bigger in the bigger picture uh, that'll, that'll be playing out in Hamburg. Uh, Mutaba, there is, there's a federal a German federal election that will take place, is scheduled to take place on the 24th of September. Uh, how has uh, President Donald Trump uh, become, if not a major, uh, you know, a feature of that campaign, but uh, but kind of in the shadows of that campaign that Angela Merkel is uh, is expected to prevail? So more than, certainly more than a shadow, I agree with this view. I think Trump is front and center of the German election, primarily because Martin Schultz, the head of the Social Democrats, who is competing with Merkel for the chancellery, um, has, is running on a very explicit anti-Trump 
ticket. That's really the identity that Martin Schultz has assumed in the election, tapping into, frankly, a tremendous amount of resentment for Trump among the German population. He is reviled in Germany, Donald Trump is, and Schultz is explicitly trying to to tap into that. That's put Merkel in something of a difficult situation, and I think that's why over the last weeks and months we've also seen her move into a slightly more critical posture via the U.S. But, of course, Merkel is in office. She needs to have a working relationship with the U.S. I think there's, there's a recognition, of course, that fundamentally European interests and German interests are tied to a productive relationship with the U.S. And as such, I think that's a, you know, put Merkel in something of a difficult situation. But this is front and centre, the Trump question in the context of the German election. I wonder if you could speak about the context of the United Kingdom and its vote to leave the European Union. Theresa May, the prime minister, also attending the G20 meeting in Hamburg. What, what is her stature like uh, at, a, at a gathering such as this? Very bad. Very bad. It's similar to what it's like in the context of uh, her European Council meetings when she turns up in Brussels and meets with other European heads of state. I mean, Theresa May is essentially a prime minister who is one mistake away from oblivion. She has no mandate. She doesn't have the confidence of her parliamentary party. She doesn't have the confidence of the Tory base not the population. I mean, it's a a really difficult situation for her to be in. I I don't think she has any active objective at the G20. I think uh, her mandate, if she does have one, will probably be to deliver Brexit. Whether she can survive to do that remains in question. I don't think she's a player on the global stage. I think the UK is, is really in a very defensive, difficult situation that is aggravated by the fact she really did botch her election and, 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 and erode her majority. Very difficult for Theresa May. You, you mentioned the anti-Trump uh, sentiment that prevails in Germany, and I'm wondering uh, if that is distracting European leaders from issues such as immigration, border controls, Greece, uh, the potential for uh, reunification of, of Cyprus. I mean, there are a lot of very specific European issues right. that uh, have yet to be addressed. Actually, no. You know, it's interesting. Actually, not. I think the combination of Donald Trump and his ambiguous commitment to multilateralism, the, the, the fact of the Brexit vote, um, in combination with Emmanuel Macron in France, nothing short of a revolution in France that Macron has implemented and achieved over the last several months. The combination of those three things is creating impetus in Europe to do more in Europe for the European Union to become more cohesive, to integrate and work together collectively to address more security and defense challenges, and, and of course, to put the Eurozone on a more stable footing. So I think Trump is actually one factor alongside Brexit, um, alongside Macron, that are driving certainly the French and the Germans to say, look, this is a moment. Let's seize the opportunity. Let's make, let's take advantage of this difficult situation to do more in the European context. And I think we're going to see that over the the next few years. So if, if anything, we're slightly more positive about the outlook for Europe, because I do think the political conversation is evolving in a way that's likely to be beneficial for Europe and the EU. 
I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, Mutaba Rahman is the practice head for Europe for the Eurasia Group. He was joining us from London. And here to tell us more about steel, but also metals and mining, is our own Joe Doe. He is our metals and mining reporter for Bloomberg News, and he can be followed uh, at Joe Doe, D-E-A-U-X. There you go. Um, Joe, you were just uh, in Pittsburgh, you were telling me. You were at a blast furnace, the original blast furnace for U.S. steel, correct? I was. Uh, so we'll, um, we'll be... Putting out a story uh, sometime soon about that uh, to to look at uh, the industry on a whole and, and and U.S. Steel as well and you know as you just heard Andy talking about I mean the big the big focus here is in the immediate term what is going to come of 232 what is the Trump administration going to put out there on steel and again as Andy did point out rightly uh, the market's pretty much just waiting for that I mean every other day there's somebody calling in asking. When exactly is this going to come? And it's one of the things that we've been chasing as well. Well, one of the things, the reason I brought up the blast furnace actually was because I wanted you to describe the number of people necessary to produce uh, steel. Because, of course, the tariff is linked to, all right, if there are foreign imports that are being dumped in the United States in order to gain market share, that hurts U.S. companies because then they don't hire workers. And I'm wondering whether you could speak to that. Yeah, it's it's an, it's an interesting question and, and one that we who cover the steel industry are kind of bogged in, bogged down in on a daily basis. Uh, Thomas Bucheval, who's one of our reporters in London who covers the European uh, steel market, had a great story in Business Week that went out about a week ago, kind of pointing out yes. so few people that need to run many of these steel uh, these steel mills, right? And in the United States, the number is about 140,000 steel workers directly related to making, you know, what we know in blast furnaces or electric arc furnaces. And we actually had a story a couple weeks out, uh, a couple weeks ago that I did. I was talking to some industries, some downstream, you know, industry associations on steel. And they had a number. And what are uh, they, fabricators? Right, fabricators. Okay. You know, they make the panels or they'll make the trinkets that make the machines that make the metal, you know, all the all those little things. And, and in that conversation, an interesting point that they made to us that we put out on the wire was they said, well, there might be 140,000 steel jobs, but we estimate that all-in jobs that are uh, due to the downstream that all of the steel goes into could affect as many as 6.5 million manufacturing jobs. So when you start getting into the numbers of, well, where are the jobs at and who has more jobs? You 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 start seeing some of these 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 numbers that you know seem to maybe tell a bit of a different story than what we might be getting in terms of a full story from the administration, which I'm guess is what I'm guessing is what you're kind of hinting. Yeah, at. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to know then, uh, do these downstream uh, companies are they for the tariffs? Mm. Uh, the downstream companies are a, a bit more careful with how they do approach it, right? Because um, many of them is, increases their input costs, and now they've got to input. raise prices to their customers. Absolutely, and and one of the things we had a we had a really interesting story out a, a, a month ago on the aluminum side, and I was sitting at a conference, and the the man who buys all of the the aluminum for Miller cores for Molson cores uh, says up there, listen, if we get tariffs on the aluminum side. It's going to cost us, and ultimately, it could cost the consumers. So I said to my editor, "Gosh, we got to write this." And sure enough, you know, it it got a lot of pick pickup because it, it it's so basic, right? If you and I are going to go out and buy our, you know, our Coors Light over the weekend, and suddenly, you know, the Trump administration has levied these tariffs, you know, it it I mean, there's a lot 
there's a lot of complexity to it, but in some way we could incur, you know, minor change in cost. And, and that's really what they were getting at. And it's very similar with what the downstream producers of steel are trying to argue as well. Well, it seems as though, you know, the supply chain runs both ways. It runs up and then it runs down and ultimately ends with the consumer. Someone ends up incurring the cost that gets passed through. And that is the key thing that everybody's focusing on and is why there has been a struggle within the White House as to whether or not they're going to levy these tariffs or a tariff rate quota. And that's something we've been chasing now for quite a few months. All right. Well, we look forward to you uh, continuing to keep us up to date. As always, in fact, I'll buy you that Colson, that uh, Molson course here. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, Joe Doe is our metals and mining reporter for Bloomberg News. Once again, you can follow him on Twitter at Joe Doe. Right now, I want to bring in Andrew Chamberlain. He is the chief economist for Glassdoor. Uh, Andrew Chamberlain, great to have you with us. You know, we got some of the details uh, of the report, and there are lots of numbers. But in your study, you tell us the cities in which pay is increasing and also the actual jobs that you want to get and the skills that you need to get that increased pay. Tell us about it. Yeah, sometimes uh, tech companies like Glassdoor have better data on the labor market than the BLS. And so what we do is we look at 10 big metros around the country, and we use real-time salary data on Glassdoor to show pay growth. So among the cities, if you're in San Francisco, Seattle, or New York, you're seeing fast pay growth today, well above national average. However, if you're in Houston, Atlanta, or D.C., you're well below the average. So what it shows you is that slow overall pay number in the BLS report, it hides a lot of diversity. depends on where you live and what you do for a living. Well, here's some of that diversity and the numbers, right? In San Francisco, median base pay has increased more than 2.5% from the previous year, and it stands at just over $68,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's more than uh, 10000 more than $15,000, more than the national average, actually. So um, uh, definitely varies, pay growth varies a lot by city today, and, but also varies a lot by jobs. So if you are a recruiter today, so in today's very tight labor market with record low unemployment in many cities, recruiters are seeing pay grow at over 8% year over year. So they are in demand as companies are relying on poaching uh, candidates from the competition. Um, we're also seeing some fast pay growth among some low-skilled jobs. So jobs like uh, warehouse associate and delivery driver, these are people that are fueling the supply chain in places like Amazon and Walmart, and they're actually seeing uh, pay rise today. I want to mention the barista and restaurant cook uh, job titles only because you say that those are also increasing in pay, over a 7% increase year over year. Yeah, these are low-skilled roles. They only pay about twenty-five dollars to $29,000 per year. But we're seeing fast rises of 7 8% per year. This partly reflects a huge number of job openings in leisure and hospitality and retail uh, today, and also um, reflects some minimum wage hikes that we've seen around the country this year. That pay range uh, absolutely is being affected by um, these you know, $12 and $15 minimum wages we're seeing in big cities. What about some of the highest paying jobs? Uh, you mentioned pharmacist is at the top of the list. Tell us about this particular trend. Yeah, well, many healthcare jobs do show up toward the top of the list. Uh, healthcare is like the 800-pound gorilla of the labor market today. Lots of jobs, like a million job openings in healthcare. Um, yeah, pharmacists um, making about $124,000 per year in our data. Other high-paying jobs, there's many in tech, for example. Data scientists are making about $95,000 on average. Uh, and that was year. an increase of nearly 3% from the previous year. 
Yeah, it's high paying and it's fast growing. Uh, and, you know, and that's the national average. If you're in San Francisco, you should expect six figures for sure for data scientists. And there's other tech roles like solutions architect, which many people may not even know what that is, but it's a higher level software engineer who helps craft many of the software products that we use today. Um, and also UX designer. So if you are an art student in college and you want to get into tech, a UX designer is a, someone who designs the front end that we see on many websites. And they're seeing pay rise at 4% per year, and it's almost, uh, almost $80,000 a year. I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Chamberlain. He is the chief economist for Glassdoor, and uh, he's based in Mill Valley, California. Uh, it, Andrew, as far as the jobs that are showing uh, the weakest growth, I'm wondering if you could spend some time uh, enlightening us about the jobs where you don't have a lot of leverage. Well, jobs that are being affected by automation include more than just blue-collar jobs that many people think about. There's some jobs like a loan officer, um, uh, for example, where, you know, um, many people can get loans without talking to a person anymore, just using a web-based interface. So they are seeing pay fall at about 5% year over year. Other types of jobs that are losing ground include uh, manufacturing-related jobs like design engineer. So a design engineer is someone who designs many of the physical products we use. They're seeing pay fall about 4% year over year. So um, what this shows is that the labor market today is very diverse. Underneath that 2.5% wage growth figure from the BLS report, it, it varies hugely. And so I, my view is policymakers, especially at the Fed, looking at that slow growth number, they need to be digging below the surface and looking at real jobs to see where there's labor shortages and where there aren't today. Well, you mentioned, we, we were talking, remember you mentioned about pharmacists, let's say $124,000 a, a year, but then you look at things like certified nursing assistant making only 28000 and mm -hmm. a pharmacy technician making 30000 So that disparity is large. Yeah, healthcare is an interesting case where there's uh, many very high-paying roles, especially physicians, which often earn two and three hundred thousand per year for a median. Um, and then there's many lower-skilled roles like EMTs, for example, and and uh, nursing assistants. Um, so um, on average, healthcare um, is like a, a driver of middle-wage job growth today, and it is definitely the single biggest sector adding jobs today, uh, by far. Um, so um, I'm actually quite optimistic about healthcare. As you got retiring baby boomers using right. more and more healthcare services, um, let's just hope that any healthcare reform that happens in Congress does not disrupt this giant, uh, giant sector that's about a sixth of the U.S. economy. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us, Dr. Andrew Chamberlain. He is chief economist for Glassdoor, based in Mill Valley, California. Now I want to turn to another topic that is tangential to the meeting between President Donald Trump and President Vladimir Putin, and that is cybersecurity. Michael Riley is our cybersecurity reporter for Bloomberg. And Michael, uh, the Russians and cybersecurity and cyber attacks, uh, that's been in the, the news. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those potential attacks, but add in the potential for U.S. Uh, electrical grid disruptions because of these kinds of technologies. Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, the U.S. government sent out an alert to utilities last week. It was pretty thin on de details, uh, but it did describe infiltrations into the nuclear and power sector, 
we uh, talked to some senior U.S. officials, and and uh, what we found was that there's actually something very serious going on behind the scenes, even as as uh, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump are meeting today. More than a dozen, or at least a dozen, power plants um, have been breached since May, um, and these are the the you know there's there's not an immediate threat to public safety, but the hackers seem to be looking for information and ways to get from uh, the basic computers of the plant into the control systems, um, the, uh, which means that they might be able to, to to impact the power going onto the grid, create a cascading failure. Why what this ha- is why this is important is that it's you know we've seen this happen in Ukraine twice in the last year where they've where hackers have actually taken down the electrical grid. I wanted to ask you, <clears throat> excuse me, specifically about the Wolf Creek nuclear power plant in Kansas. What went yep. on there? Yeah. So what we do know is that that among the twelve plants, one of them, at least one of them, was a nuclear plant, and it's a a plant uh, in Kansas uh, in a relatively rural area called Wolf Creek. This is a a, a plant that was sort of built to be uh, the model of Three Mile Island. Um, it's quite an aging plant, um, and it was one of the plants hit by the hackers. When it comes to nuclear plants, both nuclear and conventional power plants were hit, uh, were hacked. But um, nuclear is of, of specific concerns because it's a it's a very particular kind of system. And even though the the nuclear core itself is quite protected, in part because the technology is very old and so not really vulnerable to digital attacks, it's it's one of those things where if you can shut down the turbine, uh, all the you still have a nuclear core that's producing a lot of energy, and that energy has to go somewhere. Where there are safety systems that are supposed to kick in, but those safety systems themselves are vulnerable to attack. So it gets quite scary when you start looking at nuclear plants. You've also written that the teams from the Homeland Security and the FBI have been working to secure these power stations, but they're not necessarily informing local or state officials. Why wouldn't they do that? Well, I think uh, the first reaction in cases like this is that it's a uh, national security event. These are uh, hackers that, that are working for a different country. And any time that they uh, start messing around with critical infrastructure, that counts as national security. And I think the, the knee-jerk reaction is to keep everything quite secret. I think that a lot of the utilities themselves would say, look, this isn't an imminent threat to public safety. We're trying to get these the, these hacks under control. The, the, the hackers haven't got to the control systems. So there's nothing imminent uh, that would cause us to sort of go to state and local officials. But we did talk to some local officials who said who who had gotten an uh, inkling of what was going on, and and they were clearly a little dismayed that they hadn't been informed. Uh, you'd also written that much of the uh, work that the hackers have done has come from machine servers uh, that are located in places such as Germany, Italy, Malaysia, and Turkey. Is this new? You know, that's actually how hackers uh, who are trying to hide their identity work. They they don't hack directly from uh, their home computers, whatever country they're operating from. What they do is they they hack into other computers and across the globe and use those as hot points. And the whole idea is to try and disguise who they are. There's a really uh, complicated counter uh, intelligence maneuver where you can try and follow that track from computer to computer. So it's not exactly new. It's a, it's, it's sort of tradecraft when it comes to nation state hackers. Uh, but it does create a sort of a veil that has to be pierced to figure out who actually is behind these hacks. Well, uh, as far as uh, who is behind these hacks, the uh, intimation is that they are state actors, right? Sponsored yep. by uh, states. Such That's right. As- That's right. The, and in, in fact, the chief suspect now is Russia, which is why this is a, such a concern, um, in part because the the takedown of the, the electrical grids in the Ukraine was done by Russian hackers. And they're clearly, if you look at those incidents in Ukraine, they're, they're clearly getting more sophisticated. They're using Ukraine as kind of a test bed to see how these tools are working. So you had a, a hit in, uh, in 2015, 
uh, that was a, uh, a little bit less sophisticated. And then again in 2016, where they had clearly automated a lot of the processes. And the, the, the grid wasn't down for very long. That didn't seem to be what the attackers were trying to do. It looked like they were testing these tools. But that means that, that when you then see the you know uh, hackers that link to Russia in your own power plants here in the U.S., you get really, really nervous. Well, uh, you know, you mentioned the uh, the hack attacks and uh, in the context of national security, but this also involves companies. So if you think it's just a political or a uh, uh, sort of a strategic issue, it's also a corporate issue. Mondelez uh, International saying that a cyber attack had crippled their corporate uh, computer systems. Employees had to work uh, from their mobile phones and that as a result it's going to reduce second quarter sales growth by three percentage points. So this is an issue not just for governments, but clearly, or utilities, but clearly for businesses. No, absolutely. And if you if you put the the, the cap of, of business owners on, this is a, a huge and growing problem. I mean, and many companies will will talk about this in 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 uh, in general terms. They're they're basically companies, and they're being attacked increasingly uh, by nation states. These are like the security agencies of countries that have a huge amount of resources. Many, in many cases, they, they're, they're asking themselves why their own governments and the US government and others aren't doing more to protect them. Um, and, and so it creates this very weird imbalance where if you're a company and you're being hit by the intelligence agencies of another state, you just don't have the same resources that they do. Uh, what I get your thoughts, I know, I know you're not in Hamburg, but uh, the amount of electronic surveillance and countermeasures that are being deployed when you have 20 heads of state uh, has got to be enormous. Yeah, it is enormous. I mean, one of the, one of the things we've learned from things like the, the, uh, the Snowden leaks and others is that uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, efforts to uh, tap into the communications of each of those leaders as they're discussing with their own teams what to say and how to say it. Um, there's some pretty uh, uh, interesting and, and quite colorful examples of how uh, spy agencies do that. Um, but it's it's I mean, I think that that's just part of the spy trade. They're they're basically looking for to read the cards of of the other members of the of the uh, of the G20 that they're going to be meeting with. And and this is like one of the things that you do is you just use your spy agencies to do that. Right. Well, we know that that had already uh, been a topic of conversation because of the uh, hack by U.S. intelligence or the eavesdropping of U.S. intelligence officials on uh, Angela Merkel in, in the past. Absolutely. I want to thank you very much uh, for being with us, Michael. Riley is our cybersecurity reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.